You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brad. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all. My name is Tim. For those that I haven't met yet, and I um, have the privilege of serving here as, as lead pastor. And uh, it's been a fun weekend with a lot of, I'm sure a lot of dads getting to do some fun things with their kids while the women were away at the women's retreat. Some have already come back, but pray for those that are still traveling on their way back. I trust it was a really sweet time of connecting with one another, of communion together. And uh, well, our kids got a lot of ice cream, so <laughs> I don't know about yours, but 
Yeah, you know, this is um, the first Sunday in what's known as Holy Week, and we are excited for what we have happening, what we have in store this week. Um, one big one to note is Good Friday, happening this upcoming Friday at Levere Memorial Temple alongside Agape Chicago, one of our church plants. And so we're thrilled to be able to partner together for that service. We invite you, uh, don't come here, make sure you are there at Levere. That service is at 6.30. Um, thank you to Daniel Grell for preaching last Sunday, for filling in for us as our family was away. And uh, would you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and ask that you would help us to remember this, this week in a, in a heightened way, all that Jesus endured for us. And Father, speak to us today as we come to receive the food of your holy word. Spirit, take the truths that we discover and seal them deep within us. Form and fashion us more in the likeness of Jesus. We pray that the light of Christ would be seen in our lives and in acts done in obedience and in faith to the glory of your name. May you get all the glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned today, we embark upon Holy Week, also known as Passion Week. Maybe you've heard those phrases before, but what comes to mind when you hear a phrase like Passion Week? You know, there were quite a few passionate fans surrounding uh, March Madness, you know, this past, this past month. Um, congratulations to Chelsea. I don't think she's here, but Chelsea won the EBF bracket, so congratulations to her. You know, maybe you think of something that's, you know, celebrated for a week long. I know one that is in our family is, uh, that my sister-in-law is particularly passionate about is Shark Week. Do we have any other Shark Week fans, I think, on the... Discovery Channel, oh good, one. I'm glad there's one other <laughs> fan among us. But uh, maybe you think about your school and something like Spirit Week. Uh, do they still have those types of things anymore? Yeah, okay, good. Where you're supposed to wear the colors and all that good stuff, but lots of different, uh, I'm sure lots of different things come to mind when you hear that phrase, Passion Week. But that, that phrase, that word, comes from the Latin passio, which means suffering. This week is one that traditionally runs from, from uh, today, Palm Sunday, through Easter, and it marks Christ's suffering on the cross, all that he endured across that week. And I know in a room with, with this many people that many of us come here from very different places. Many of us enter into this week in very different places, perhaps some having seen God do some pretty amazing things as of late and entering on a high note. Others perhaps experiencing pain, feeling like your world is turning upside down or something similar. Regardless of where we come entering into this week together, my prayer for all of us is that we would hear these gospel truths afresh, that we would be reminded together of all that our Savior endured and we're going to be going into uh, something a little different for us as a church, but entering into this three-week or three-part series during this week called Songs of the Savior. Songs of the Savior. We're going to look at three psalms that are quoted or alluded to during the Passion Week. The first being Psalm 118, which we just had read and participated in. Thank you. Then Palm 
or uh, Psalm 22 on, Palm, on uh, Good Friday. Man, that's confusing. I'm sorry. Psalm 22 on Good Friday. And then Psalm 16 on Easter. And we will see how these psalms provided the script of Jesus, provided him with strength as he went along. How they were on, not only on his lips, but on the lips of others that those across that week. And how also they came to inform the gospel proclamation of the early church in the wake of the events of this week. And so songs of the Savior. In our time together this morning, we're going to unpack Psalm 118. Fast forward then to what's called the triumphal entry. We just heard or saw the video with the kids moment there. Looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Before then landing in the witness of Peter before the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, 8 through 12. And as we do so, we're going to discover the gospel thread that runs through these passages. So first, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a, a joyful song of thanksgiving that enjoyed a special place in the hearts of God's people. And it's hard to know the exact circumstances that surrounded this particular psalm. It could have had to do with some sort of uh, festive procession into Jerusalem after a deliverance, after a, a victory of some sort. And the individual of the psalm was most likely the leader, perhaps the king himself. And the psalm, you might have noticed even spatially as we went through it, it, it involves a procession up to the temple gates, through the gates, and up to the altar in the court of the temple. According to Jewish tradition, it became a central psalm in both the Feast of Tabernacles as well as Passover. And many understood it to have what we might call messianic overtones as the people looked forward to God's future deliverance, the deliverance that he would bring. You know, one of the things I found myself doing as I was reading and studying this passage was I busted out three different highlighters. And uh, kids, this might be something to consider. I know you've got the worksheet there and the, the passage on one of those pages. And you might not have necessarily three colors there, but if you do, or if you want to do this at home, what I found myself doing was highlighting anything that had to do with who God is in yellow, and then anything having to do with what God has done in blue, and then third, how we are called to respond in green. Now, you can change up the colors if you want. Don't feel tied to those necessarily, but who God is, what he has done, and how we are to respond. And that's how I would like to approach the psalm here in our time um, in it this morning. First, the overwhelming truth of this vibrant psalm is that God is eternally good and loving. God is eternally good and loving. His goodness and love are unending. In the very first verse, we have a clear picture of who he is. The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. God is infinitely good. He is always good all the time. And the goodness of God is not just an attribute of God. His goodness is a way of summing up his entire nature and character. In Exodus 33, 18 to 19, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And what is the response? God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will pro proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
And what's more, Genesis reminds us that everything he created is good. The goodness of God is a central truth in the Christian faith, the goodness of God. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. The word for love here is the word hesed. It has to do with God's loyal, rock-solid, steady love. Other translations include loving kindness or steadfast love in order to get that across. And throughout the history of God's people, we have seen this love, this loyal, rock-solid love in display from creating the world to bringing his people out of, out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land, giving them victory over their enemies, and to the, event, the events even spoken of here in Psalm 118. This is a ferocious, a relentless love that will not let us go. Psalm 118 then moves on to contain other facets of who God is, but I believe under this umbrella of his goodness and his love. His goodness and his love. There are at least four, maybe others, but here are at least four other facets of who God is. The Lord is with us, verses six to seven. He has not left us far off. I love how the Psalms give us a sense of this throughout the Psalms, really. He is near, he is intimately involved in his creation. The Lord is with us. Second facet, the Lord is our strength and our defense. Verse 14, he proves strong when we are weak. He is the source of grace and strength. He defends the cause of the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. The Lord is our strength and our defense. Third, the Lord is our salvation. Verses 14 and 21. In the one sense, this is referring more generally to how God rescues us time and time again. But in the context of the psalm, it also points forward, I believe, to then the days of Jesus. It speaks of more, perhaps, than the psalmist knew. God has provided a way for us to be reunited with him. The Lord is our salvation. And fourth, not only is the Lord God, verse 27, but he is our God, verse 28. He is personal, but that doesn't make him our pet. He is, as theologians put it, holy other. Now, that's hard to get across, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. Meaning that he is completely different, that he, completely different than all other things that exist. But at the same time, as one American author, Nathan Englander puts it, he is the God of us, not a God that we own, like our TiVo or our lunchbox. Now, how many of us actually own TiVos anymore? I'm not sure, but I think you get the idea. He is the God of us, not a God that we own. Well, at the end of this psalm, God's goodness and love is repeated once more in that refrain, verse 29, it's almost like bookends on this passage. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. While God's goodness and love is displayed throughout Israel's history, this psalm gives us even more examples of that love shown primarily in his many acts of deliverance. Not only is God eternally good and loving, but his goodness and love come in all shapes and sizes. His goodness and love come in all shapes and sizes. There are at least seven of these 
acts of deliverance, deliverance being like the unifying element for, for which the psalmist gives thanks. And the first of that is that the Lord sets us free. The Lord answered me and set me free, verse five. And just as the Lord set the psalmist free, so he is in the business of continuing to set people free today. The Lord sets us free. Second, the Lord helps us, verse 13. When we are on the ropes and have nowhere else to turn, God is right there with us. Remember that refrain from Psalm 124. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord helps us. Third, the Lord has done mighty things. Verses 15 to 16. I don't know if you've experienced this before, but there are some things that at the end of the day, all we can do is throw our hands in the air and say, God did that. God did that. The text says not only that, but that the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Could this be a sign of things to come, even in the psalm here, Psalm 118? The Lord does mighty things. Fourth, the Lord disciplines us. Oh, boy. Verse 18. There are times when God needs to gently correct us to get us back on the right path, but even these are extensions of his loving kindness to us. Hebrews 12, verse six says, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Fifth, the Lord answers us. Verse 21, again, this is a part of the fact that he is near, that he is imminent, that he is intimately involved in our lives, and when we cry out to him, we know that he hears us and responds to us. It just may not be the, the answer that we're looking for at the time. He hears us and he responds. And sixth, the Lord saves us. Verse 25 says, Lord, save us. This phrase in Hebrew is hoshiano. When translated into Greek, it becomes hosanna. Awesome, we, I got some, some palm branches waving here. Hosanna, let's hear it. Hosanna, great. Not only does God continually provide his rescue, but he saves ultimately through his son Jesus, which we'll turn to here in a few moments. The Lord saves us. And seventh, the Lord shines on us. Verse 27, he has made his light to shine upon us. I believe we should recall the blessing of Aaron in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. I know there's a little bit of a danger in giving that blessing right in the middle of my message because some of you might be like, okay, ready to go. No, there's more. But wait, there's more. So many of God's acts of deliverance are on display in this passage. And in light of this then, how are we called to respond? God's goodness and love ultimately call for thanksgiving. Over and over again, the psalmist responds in giving thanks from the very first verse. As God's children, our posture should be one of continual thanksgiving, not just in the month of November, not just surrounding the holiday of thanksgiving, but a life, of, a life that is characterized by thanksgiving recognizes the truth of who God is and what he has done. And the more we are captured with the goodness and love of God, the more we will thank and obey him. 
thank God. Another response, to speak of God's love, verses two to four. To proclaim his deeds, verse 17. In verses two to four, the community is encouraged to say his love endures forever. There is something about saying those words together. I hope even as we read it together, you got a sense of that. May God's loyal love be continually on our lips. Let us be a community that rehearses together the steadfast love of God. Let us be a community that, as verse 17 says, or as verse 17 says, proclaims what the Lord has done. Why? Because we are witnesses. We are witnesses. Thank God. Speak of God's love. Third, cry out to God. Verse 5. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. When we are troubled, when we are in distress, we are called to cry out to our great God and King. We can be real with Him. We can be raw with Him. We don't have to whitewash our prayers before coming to Him. And that's where I love the Psalms of Lament that give voice to our pain, give space for being able to be real and honest before our God. That is part of the very reason why we have engaged in these monthly prayer gatherings as a church. The next one, I know it's a full weekend here with the women's retreat, but the next one is this evening. This evening at seven at the church office. If you are able and, and free, I would invite you to join us as we, as we cry out to God, even as part of that is lament before him. We can be real with him, we can be raw with him. Fourth, do not be afraid. Verse six, and similarly take refuge in God. Verses eight to nine. Not being afraid is grounded in the reality that God is with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And rather than trusting in fellow humans or political leaders, we are called to take refuge in the Lord, to tap into he who is the perfect source of power. Our grace, our strength. Do not be afraid. Fifth, Shout for joy, rejoice and be glad, verse 24. Bless God, praise God, exalt God. I hope you got a sense of those similar phrases as we went through this. These are repeated to reinforce the fact that praise should be on our lips. Because of who God is and what he has done, we are called to respond in exuberant praise. But not only that, the, the sixth response is to marvel at what God has done. Exuberant praise should be balanced with mystery. Marvel at what God has done. We need to leave room for the mysterious in our worship and in our lives. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. We are called to respond in a variety of ways that are all characterized by thanksgiving, but at the end of the day, God's goodness and love point forward to Jesus. God's goodness and love point forward to Jesus. Going through this psalm, you start to gain the sense that the psalmist speaks of more than he knows. And not only are there several parts that point forward to Jesus in general terms, like freedom, like salvation, God's right hand. There are two sections that get picked up more specifically and applied to Jesus, not only in the Gospels, but then in later writings of the early of the early church as well. The first being this whole concept of the cornerstone. 
Christ the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So first, the cornerstone, and the second is Hosanna. All right, Hosanna, Lord save us. Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. We'll come back to these two passages, but suffice it to say that these point forward to Jesus in a significant way. And so our first challenge among us, O church, is this. Thank God for his unending goodness and love shown ultimately through salvation in Jesus Christ. The highest demonstration of his eternal goodness and love was in sending Jesus to this earth to suffer among us, to experience humanity, and to give of himself in love, willingly and knowingly going to the cross. And in Luke 19, 28 through 44, we have the beginning of Passion Week as Jesus begins his own procession into Jerusalem, into the temple courts, much like the psalmist in Psalm 118. So I invite you to flip over to that passage, Luke 19, starting at verse 28. Luke 19. You know, in this passage, Jesus first comes to Jerusalem as the humble king, and then he weeps over Jerusalem in verses 41 through 44 because of its rejection of him. The setting is first given in verses 28 through 29. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Then in the verses that follow here, Jesus gives very specific instructions. He says to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And sure enough, we find the disciples doing exactly that, following Jesus' instructions to a T. Those, verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. This, just these verses alone give us a glimpse into Jesus' total knowledge of all the details. And not only that, but directing the events that take place. And he acts, I believe, in deliberate fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah that we heard, heard, we heard read earlier. The king coming on a lowly donkey. Jesus is pictured here as being in control. Nothing catches him off guard or by surprise. In essence, Jesus directs the sequence of events that leads to his own death. Nothing about the story seems to point to him falling into some sort of unforeseen trap. He willingly and knowingly went to the cross. And Jesus continues to work deliberately in our lives today. Well, at this point, the procession begins, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As they went along, people spread the cloaks on the road. You know, this whole placing cloaks on the colt and on the road is an act of paying homage. They, it's almost like, you know, we just had the Oscars, for instance, and they had the red carpet that stretched out in front of the venue. This is like giving Jesus the red carpet treatment, right, as he comes into Jerusalem. And while the background is royal, riding on a humble animal signals that the Messiah comes in humility. 
and service. Humility and service. Starting in verse 37, the crowd erupts into jubilation when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, it is the larger group of Jesus' disciples who lead this sort of, these antiphonal shouts in praise of God for all the miracles they have seen Jesus do. Those that he has dramatically liberated, whether it be healing of their diseases, uh, delivering them from demon possession, raising people from the dead. Psalm 118 would have been on the lips and on the hearts of the people this week as they headed toward Passover. On the lips of these pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem, And in, I'm slightly cheating here, but in Matthew and in Mark, the crowds shout, Hosanna. That's right, Hosanna, God save. Here in Luke, the emphasis is on the crowds shouting Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there's a twist. Did you see what Luke does? He includes blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples declare that Jesus is the king. He is the sent one of God who comes with God's authority. And they are filled with joy and declare peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I think we're meant to recall the beginning of Luke, chapter two, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus is on the throne. He comes as the humble king And as you read the Passion narrative, everything points, everything from this point forward points to the cross as the coronation ceremony of of our king. Along the way, I think we even traced out some of these themes last year during, during Passion Week. From the crown of thorns to the purple robe to the mock scepter that is placed in his hand, all to the sign that's nailed above him on the cross. All of these point to the cross as Christ's coronation ceremony. He is the king, and he still reigns as king. There is hope for hurting hearts. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. I think we are meant to ask of ourselves, is he our king? Is he our king? In the midst of this festive procession, the Pharisees do their best can I say it, their best Debbie Downer impression. You almost hear it in the text there, you know, wah, wah. I'm dating myself slightly. Does anybody, I don't even want to do a show of hands on this one. Please tell me you know Debbie Downer. Please. Yes, show me your hands. Why not? Show me. Okay, thank you. Can I hear a wah, wah? That was good. That was good. Not nearly as exciting as Hosanna, but that's what happens here, right? <laughs> oh, thank you. That was like a flyby, that was awesome. The Pharisees do their best Debbie Downer here when they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Evidently, the Pharisees put two and two together and understood the importance of the claims that the crowds are making in this point. And they urge Jesus to shut them up. And what does he do? He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There is inherent irony and rebuke in this statement. Inanimate objects like rocks know more about what is taking place than the Pharisees do. 
And all of creation was made to worship its king. And in what could be even more of a twist, the stones could very well, they could refer to any stones, but it could be that there is the possibility Jesus is referring to the very stones of the temple that he passes by. All of history pointed to this this spectacular event when the Messiah would publicly present himself to the people of Israel. And God intended that this fact be acknowledged, and if people were unwilling, creation itself would cry out. Creation would cry out. Well, this story, traditionally known as the triumphal entry, slows down considerably. Luke slows their narrative down and transitions to the moving scene found in the next four verses as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem because of its rejection of him. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You know, this change, there's this sudden change of mood as Jesus gives this sorrowful prophecy over the city that is spread out before him. He would have had a kind of a panoramic view even of Jerusalem as he wept over it. The word for weep here is not a gentle cry. It's not a single tear being shed. No, it is more that of a deep sob. It is the cry of a parent watching a child make a foolish, life-altering decision. Jesus mourns a city that is sealing its fate. His crying resembles that of prophets like Jeremiah who wept for his people. Jesus reflects the heart of God as he thinks about how the Jewish people have rejected him. Not only him, but have rejected the prophets before him. And then moves from lament to expressing judgment in verses 43 to 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This, I believe, is a vivid prediction of the events that would be fulfilled during the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this destruction was total and devastating with not one stone left on top of another. And the reason is because they did not recognize the time of God's coming. They missed the Messiah. Jesus weeps over those who reject him. There are various responses to Jesus that are found or woven without, within these verses. Did you hope you gained a sense of that even as we read this? Will you be among those like the disciples who welcome him as king? Or be among those with folded arms like the Pharisees? Or worse yet, be among those who flat out reject him like Jerusalem? Is Jesus weeping over you today? The reality of the fate that awaits those who do reject Jesus, though, should motivate those of us who know Jesus to be his witnesses. For here's the second challenge. This same Jesus, who came to earth as the humble king, continues to reign on high and will someday come again as the conquering king. Acts 1, 11 says, men of Galilee, 
why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And the next time we see the king will be a radically different story. Kat alluded to this in our, in our kids' moment. Revelation 19, he will come in full glory on a war horse with the armies of heaven. It will be a bigger scene than Roman glory. It will be a much bigger scene than the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. It will be bigger even than the Cubs World Series parade. It will be beyond any human comparison as he comes, as he comes again to deal decisively with evil, to defeat his enemies and fully establish the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day when we will gather to worship the Lamb. We will wave palm branches in our hands as Revelation 7 reminds us, and we will shout his praises, his unending goodness and love. And so these truths, even back to Psalm 118, are woven into the faith and the gospel proclamation of the early church. They make their appearance in Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. Fast forward to that passage as well. Acts 4, we could spend a lot of time diving into this, but just as a kind of a flyover. Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin there following this, this amazing healing that takes place, the healing of a lame beggar. And th- listen to what they affirm. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, verses eight through 11. Did you hear that? Peter quotes Psalm 118, 22, and the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and he applies it directly to Jesus, something that Jesus had already alluded to in in Luke chapter 20. But to make it perfectly clear who is doing the rejecting, Peter adds the phrase, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Just as the people cried, Hosanna, Lord, save us in Psalm 118, and not only that, but in the triumphal entry as well. And as they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Peter weaves both of those together. Did you notice? Verse 12. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so, dear church, I believe our final challenge for us today is simply this. This passage calls us, urges us, to align our lives with Christ the cornerstone, through whom God saves Align your life with Christ the cornerstone through whom God saves. What an amazing image in the ancient Near East. And even to this day, the cornerstone bore the weight of two intersecting walls. It was crucial to the stability and integrity of the whole building. And so the rejected son would become the head of the church, the people of God. 
Jesus is the key. He is the foundational element in God's building, in his spiritual temple. And so we are meant to ask this question, will we align our lives to his or will we be among the stones that are forced to cry out? Or worse, will we be among the toppled rocks of those who reject him as king? Align your life with Christ, the cornerstone, through whom God saves. So church, during this Passion Week, let us take the cues from Psalm 118 and thank God for his unending goodness and love shown ultimately in Jesus Christ. Let us remember as Luke 19, 28 through 44 reminds us that this same Jesus who came to earth as the humble king continues to reign on high and will come again as the conquering king someday when we will wave palm branches yet again. And yes, in the in-between, let us align our lives with Christ, the cornerstone through whom God saves. Amen, church? Let's say that once more. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent picture of Jesus, the humble king coming into Jerusalem knowing what he was sent to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your love, you willingly and knowingly went to the cross that you gave yourself for us. I pray that you would give us a vision of who you really are and through your word. Lord, that you would melt away the misconceptions that we have in our own hearts. I pray for anyone listening here today who does not know you, God, that they would turn to you in repentance and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would we crown you Lord of all, all of us, every fiber of our being, Tune our hearts to yours this week as we remember the life, the suffering, the death, and resurrection of our Savior. And help us, O Lord, to point people who do not know you yet to you who are the life giver, the only source of living hope. In Christ's precious, matchless, and marvelous name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.